down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, welcome to our guest segment. Let me set this up for you. The Station Nightclub Fire occurred on the evening of February 20th, 2003 in West Warwick, Rhode Island. And 100 people were killed and 230 people were injured. The fire was caused by pyrotechnics and set off by the tour tour manager of the evening's headlining band, Great White. And uh, it's one of the most incredible videos uh, that I have ever seen of something like this happen happening in a crowd in a concert like this. And joining us is the author of the book. It's called Trial by Fire. You can also uh, get this book as an audible book. Also, you can get it as Kindle. I love the Audible. I'm a member of the Audible, and I this book is included free. If you have like the Audible membership, they'll let you listen to this book free. So just do that because that's a way for you to get this information. If you're a member of Audible, they thought so much of it that they included this as one of those like freebie listens uh, that you get. And uh, Scott James, good to have you with us, sir. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I, I want to start by asking you, um, what drew you to this story? I mean, it's it's obviously a fascinating story, but is this kind of your beat? Like you cover these kinds of things or was there something in particular about this tragedy that that drew you to it? Well, I am actually a longtime journalist. I'm based out in uh, California now. I've written for The New York Times. But uh, the Station Nightclub fire is the worst thing to happen where I grew up. So I'm a local guy from that part of southern New England, and this happened in 2003. And like so many people there, you know, Rhode Island is a very small state, and everybody seems to know each other. And I knew people who were there that night. Wow. And so, look, this is a case, one of the deadliest fires in the United States, deadliest rock concert in the United States, one of the deadliest criminal cases in the United States. But in the end... There was never a trial, not civil or criminal. And so there were a lot of unanswered questions. And even though I was living out here in California, I would come back to see my family. And when I would go home, people would say, you know, there's something not right about that case. We never really found out what happened. Wow. There was never a case where everything was laid out, all the evidence, you know, where people were cross-examined in court. And you could actually look and see what the government had for its, its side of the story. So... About uh, 10 years ago, I decided to just start asking some questions and kind of evolve them there. Now, just uh, and we're going to get into all this, but in a nutshell, what's your theory as to I mean, there would have I mean, I would think this would be a golden civil lawsuit for sure for anybody that died or was injured Maybe they were just all the cases were all settled, but that doesn't explain why there wasn't any criminal liability. Correct. 
Well, there were criminal liability and there was a criminal case, but it was plea bargains. So I think one of the things that uh, your listeners will be interested in hearing is that kind of the plea bargain system has replaced the legal system in the United States. The, the cases that we see on TV, like in Law and Order, where there's a day in court and everybody gets their say, those are extremely rare now. Right. Uh, more than 95% of all criminal cases are settled with plea bargains in the United States. So that happened in this case. And uh, the people who were accused, there were three people. There were a lot of people culpable. We can talk about that. Yeah. But only three people were ever criminally charged. Uh, and uh, over years, there was intense pressure for them to... Uh, settle to plea bargain. And in the end, they did. And so there was never a criminal case where everyone was, you know, put on the stand and the evidence was shown. And the people who took the plea bargains thought, well, you know what, eventually that will come out in the civil cases, there's going to be a civil case. And there, there will be a trial and people would cross examine and the evidence would put out, but then that was settled. And so nothing was really put out there for everyone to see the uh, grand jury testimony that was extensive that led to the indictments all that was secret and sealed hmm. now eventually in when years went by and there were lawsuits and, and legal maneuvers eventually we did get to see what people had to say when they testified under oath for the grand jury and much of that is what i use in my investigation to kind of reopen this case and re-examine all of the facts not just the ones that were sound bites on tv uh, for trials that never happened now i've been to west warwick rhode island i used to go there um on business um Tell people what that town is like and what this event was like. Um, you know, in my view, it's like it's 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 not like like a, a, a nothing little nowhere town, but it's a really fairly small, quaint town. And this would have been sure. like the biggest thing going. Right. I mean, it's like, hey, this is yeah, like yeah. where everybody would want to be there. This is this is the place to be. Uh, and this was the big, Absolutely. big Saturday night deal. Right. Well, this, it was a Thursday night, Thursday night. right? In, uh, in, in so many ways, right? So this was, you know, this is a typical small New England town. And, and even though this place, the Stasia nightclub now is, is part of infamy because a hundred people were killed and hundreds were hurt. The fact that was before this tragedy, yes, this was a beloved place that people loved to go to. If you had a blue your own rock band that you started in your garage, chances are the station would allow you to do a show there mm -hmm. for your friends and your family. And in fact, there were two local bands before we ever got to the headliner of the night, which was Great White, uh, kind of famous. In 1989, they had a song called once bitten, twice shy, <laughs> yeah. and uh, they were big on MTV. They filled arenas. Kind of describes my. That, that kind of describes my dating li life uh, <laughs> before I was married. <laughs> but so yeah. look, they had, they had the big hair and the big concerts, and they were a big. Deal. Yeah, they were. But by the time we get to 2003, they had you know lost uh, some of their uh, um, following. And so they were playing smaller clubs like this one in West Warwick. And so West Warwick is a former New England mill town that probably was, you know, Don as luck for a number of years because the mills, of course, most of them went out of business. So a lot of working class people, the club was filled with those, you know, waitresses and guys who move furniture for a living and auto mechanics. Yeah. That was the, the audience there, rockers, a lot of people with tattoos. 
So this was uh, the scene there in West Warwick when this club came in. So the problem was that the band still had those, hang- were hankered for those days of the arenas. And so they decided as part of their show, they were going to light off fireworks to, st- uh, to start their very first song. And uh, unfortunately for them, two things happened. These were uh, called 15 by 15 gerbs because they lasted for 15 seconds and went 15 feet into the air. The club only had 12 foot ceilings. So already this is a recipe for disaster. Oh, my goodness. The the fireworks were illegal. They were not allowed under state law to do anything like that. There was no permit that was attempted to get. So these hit the walls. But the problem with this particular club is the walls were not ordinary walls. The walls were covered in soundproofing foam. Oh, my goodness. Soundproofing foam, you know, you know from being in the radio. Right here in my studio. (laughs) It's all around me right here. Yeah. Right. But instead of having sound foam on the walls, instead what was put on the walls of the club, and this became crucial in the investigation, was packing foam. Sound foam that you have in your studio is fire-resistant, fire-retardant. Right. But packing foam is highly flammable. It's like an accelerant. It's almost like solid gasoline. So they had the equivalent on the walls of this club. We would find out later through a federal investigation of 13 gallons of gasoline. And so when those fireworks hit that phone, the place went up like a torch. Within seconds, the place, the temperatures in the air got to more than a thousand degrees. The problem is the other part of being part of the rock concert culture is that when the fire started and the, the flames or the columns of flames on each side of the stage, nobody moved. They thought it was part of the show. Columns of flames are part of rock concerts, right? So it would have been weird in a small club like that to have that type of a special effect. But for 30 seconds, people still rocked on. The band kept playing. It wasn't until the fire alarms went off that people realized that there was a danger. And at that point, they had less than a minute to really evacuate that building, which was not enough. So, time. so even and though so many people, even perished. though that whole thing went went up like that, for a minute you kind of suspend disbelief and think like. Wow, this is incredible. Like, right. like, you know, if you're at Disney and you see something like that, I mean, you, you do, you do that at Disney, you get on one of those rides and all of a sudden you come around yeah. a corner and it looks like you're flying over Paris, France and you're like, wow, I'm flying right. over Paris, France. So you just kind of, you're like into the energy of the moment and you suspend disbelief Absolutely. and you think that this is part of the yeah. show. How much is, is it oversimplifying it to, to say that, uh, with regard to that venue? That this, um, this, this flammable, um, padding that they had up, this, all these indoor yeah. pyrotechnics, that this, this occurred. Is it oversimplifying it to say because it was such a small venue? Like this, this venue, like you could have never gotten away with this, like at a big venue in Dallas or a big venue in Chicago. I toured as a professional musician and even back in the day, right. this was in the 1980s. We weren't even allowed to plug in or unplug our electronics. We had to have a licensed electrician from the union sure. plug in, a, plug in a cord. This is like, obviously that was like way overkill. But do you think that this all happened? The perfect storm was this venue was not at all permitted or regulated. It was just sort of what, whatever the owners wanted to do and whatever this band wanted to do. And that was the perfect storm. Well, I think what they, what they found out in the aftermath of this, in Rhode Island at least, when they looked into it, was that most of the states run this way, not just this one particular place. Wow. So one of the sad facts about this ter- tragedy is that um, people were kind of doomed before they ever stepped into the club that night because 
uh, the building did not have sprinklers. And this is a really important thing for people to think about and think about as they go out today yeah. in 2021. So sprinklers are a technology that dates back to the 1800s. So it's not like they weren't invented in 2003. They were definitely part of the, our culture of safety in the United States. But they weren't required in this business because of something called grandfathering. And this exists all over the United States, not just in Rhode Island, right. where people are like, well, that building was built in this year, so the codes from that year apply, and they don't have to go to for modern codes. So had the building had, uh, if they had had sprinklers, which it should have had for a building that has hundreds of people, you know, so it's a public gathering place, everyone would have lived. And this isn't just me theorizing this. A few days before this, the identical thing happened in Minneapolis, where a rock band went in, set off pyrotechnics as part of a show, did not have permission, they were illegal, they caught the foam on fire in that club, but in that club, they had sprinklers. The sprinklers went off. Everyone survived. No one was hurt. The building wasn't even badly damaged. So, but in Rhode Island, didn't have that because no one had updated their fire codes in that state. The f- officials who were, you know, responsible for doing that had not done that in decades. Some of those codes dated back to the 1950s. Worse yet, the building had been inspected multiple times after the foam was installed. Remember, the people who were installed the foam, the nightclub operators, uh, there's paperwork that I report in the book and people will see for the very first time that shows that they actually ordered sound foam. One of the guys who was the co-owner of the club actually worked in broadcasting. He knew the difference between sound foam that we work with in broadcasting and other things. So, so, even an expert who was in the club after the foam was installed, uh, somebody who worked for the company that sold them the foam, couldn't tell the difference. There's no way that you and I, by eyeballing it, to know the difference between flammable foam and safe foam. They all look identical. But a fire inspector had gone in there multiple times, and what he's supposed to do, and what he worked in another jurisdiction most definitely would have done, is would have said, hey, where's the paperwork for this foam so I can be sure this is the flame-proof type? And if they didn't have the paperwork, he would take a piece of it out to the parking lot try to light it on fire and see if it went up. That's what they do in other jurisdictions, but it wasn't done there. So people were doomed before they got there because the codes had not been updated in decades. The place didn't have sprinklers, and even the inspector didn't really do what was standard in that day. So there's culpability there on the government's part before we even get to the screw-ups of the band bringing in illegal fireworks, setting them off, you know, the ceilings being low and all of that. Well, I can tell you, too, that... uh, You called it the perfect storm of fires, and you are so right. That is exactly how it is. Florida, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talking out of school. I got probably some of my friends listening, my fellow musicians, and I'm not going to mention any venues by name, but I play in venues right now where, no kidding, you can like pop up one of those tiles in those drop ceilings and see extension cords yep. running through the ceiling. Sure. Uh, you know, that are connecting like 220 uh, <laughs> uh, connections. I mean, my dad was an electrician right, and- right. Uh, I mean, not only I mean, it's just ridiculous, but you, you in some states like Florida, which is a big state, we're not super regulated in, in every case. And people get away with a lot of stuff. I know we we hate the building inspector and what the gov- you know, government compliance and all that. Mm-hmm. But these are things that are still happening today. And on that. So um, I want you to talk about the dynamic, the crowd dynamics of trampling which I find uh, just absolutely horrifying, the idea of this. But I want you to talk about it, too, in context of like just venues today. Like when I go on YouTube or Instagram, I see people so tightly congregated in small venues 
and it looks like a lot of fun and the body surfing and all that stuff, the mosh pits and everything. Yep. But you think to yourself, okay, if something happened, even just like a false alarm, like a firecracker goes off and people think there's a gun that was fired. Uh, I don't know yeah. that trampling risk to me. It looks like it's 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 everywhere. It's prevalent today. Uh, but talk about trampling as as part of that and, and where you see that today. Well, it's a really that's a it, it, this is you know if you wanted to take away from all of this, uh, this is one thing we should definitely be talking about is currently what is a safe situation and when you go out and it doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be to a restaurant, movie theater. You want to take note of these things. So. Uh, look, the, um, uh, our lizard brain is also a component in all of this. So you talk about the perfect storm of things that went wrong. One thing that went wrong was that when the fire started and people did understand that there was a mortal danger involved, they did what any of us would do. They all headed out for exactly the way they came in. Mm -hmm. So now everybody goes towards the one door that is the entrance, now an exit, to get out. The problem is you have hundreds of people trying to get out the same door all at the same time. There were three other exits in the place that they didn't go out of because they didn't think about those. Our instinct says go back the way we came in. So what you want to do, what your listeners want to do is when you go out to a venue, whether a big one or a small one or whatever, take note of where the exits are and not just where you came in. Because the chances are, like they say on airplanes, the closest exit may be behind you. So we don't do that, and we need to take note of that because that did not happen in this case, and people paid with their lives. Now, some of the exits were problematic at this club uh, because the fire started up near the stage, so the stage door exit, in order to get to it, you had to get through past this wall of fire. And some people did, but a lot of people just, the heat there got to like 1,400 degrees, and so that became pretty useless, that exit, relatively quickly. Now, most of the band members got out that way, and some of the patrons got out that way, but you can you you learn later that that was really effectively uh, not uh, a way people could get out, but that still leaves three exits to get out, and uh, not everybody knew where they were, and very quickly the club becomes completely dark, not because the lights went out, not because the emergency exits signs fail, but because the smoke or what we looks like smoke uh, comes from this fire. It's actually uh, millions and millions of superheated particles. Uh, it looks like black smoke, but in fact, it's it's quite deadly if you inhaled it. And that, of course, is a, another factor that makes this so deadly so quickly is that the conditions were just awful. So, look, one of the weird twists of this story and there are many of them uh, that we unpack, is that the entire tragedy is caught on videotape. And this happens because the night of the concert, there's a guy from the local TV news station. He's assigned there to go to the nightclub to shoot what's called B-roll. So B-roll is kind of generic footage for another story, not about the band, not about Great White. He's doing generic footage for an upcoming story. And I'm not making this up about public venue safety. <laughs> so he's wow. there earlier in the evening <laughs> taking video of people having their drinks at the bar and all that stuff. And he's packed up and he's ready to go home. And they make the announcement that says, basically, uh, Great White's going to take the stage in 10 minutes. He's like, you know what? I'm going to stick around. He said, I think they, you know, I talked to this guy. He'd never done an interview with anyone. He basically said, I, I think I'm going to stick around because I think the guys back at the station will get a kick out of seeing the first couple of songs by Great White. So he sets up his camera on, uh, on his shoulder at the back of the club and he's rolling when the band takes the stage. And so now you have this 
tragedy caught on videotape. Now, in 2021, we are so used to the idea with our phones that everything gets caught on video these days. Everything does. But in, in 2003, the iPhone had not even been invented yet. And so this was not a thing that... Had and there was no YouTube or Facebook so, or any of that. Well, I mean, we're in kind of the nascent era of social media. Yeah. This also plays a role later uh, in, in this tragedy. But basically, that footage, which is now professional news footage, goes out to the world. And so this horrible tragedy, which is already horrible by 100 people dying and so many people being hurt, now it becomes like viral. And I talked to people who were on remote Greek islands who watched that footage of the nightclub fire. Uh, they heard about it in the middle of nowhere. So this footage has been seen, and it's really terrible and i don't recommend that anyone watch it um you know it's been seen by millions perhaps billions of people over time it's just incredible and that elevated the story even beyond the awfulness as it was into kind of this international media obsession and this little tiny town west warwick rhode island suddenly is overcome with news media from all around the globe and that leads to its own level of misery for these poor people I'm going to uh, open up the phone lines. If you're somebody that sure. were, if you were living there and you're listening right now and you're living in that area or you know someone that was there, you've got a personal anecdote that you want to share about this. Um, I'm going to give the phone number now and uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen. If you're watching on the video feed, look right now in your lower right hand corner. You'll see it on all of our video platforms and I'll, I'll mention it here. I'll read it out for those listening on uh, on our audio feeds. The number right now to call is 646-716-4041 or a question that you have for our guest. But I'm mostly interested in any personal stories. You were there. You used to live there. You know someone that was was involved in this, that, that was affected. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested. 646-716-4041, 646-716-4041, or that you just have a question uh, for our guest tonight. And a bunch of questions are coming in by email. The email is jim at christianmoney.com. I'll get to as many of these email questions as possible, but Callers always jump to the front of the line, so take advantage of that. 646-716-4041. So tell me about the the band itself. Uh, At this time, the band, as I understand it, was kind of getting to be a little bit over the hill-ish, and um, even one of the band members died in the fire. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about Correct. the band. And um, it wasn't like a super it wasn't like, you know, the Rolling Stones were in town. Uh, tell us a little bit about the band yeah. and about the uh, one musician that died. Well, they had, they had certainly seen uh, better days in terms of their, you know, financial situation. Uh, they had, you know. Struggled and uh, kind of subsisted uh, with these smaller gigs for years. Uh, Weirdly enough, uh, they had been at this same club only a few years earlier and did a show. uh, And they got a pretty good audience there to show up for that. And they did not do any pyrotechnics. Pyrotechnics were added as part of their gig only for this latest tour that they were doing. And they had done them all uh, over the, the Northeast and, in fact, got quite a bit of grief for it. It came out afterwards that uh, a bunch of the nightclub 
owners of these places that they'd played at, Maine and New Jersey and other places, were really quite angry because they had said um, that they did not get permission for pyrotechnics to be lit off. And in fact, they were illegal in their state. Yeah. And the ban did it anyway. This would become a big issue as the legal case was unpacked because the owners of the nightclub business said that they never gave permission and didn't know that this was coming. Uh, and the band always contended that they got prior permission to do anything. But that story was not consistent. I mean, when it looked at other uh, bar uh, owners and club owners all throughout the Northeast, they had performed weeks prior to this. They were all pretty consistent in saying that they never gave permission and the band set off the fireworks anyway. So, yeah, I don't know. They were looking, you know, to obviously make a, a big impression. Uh, look, I saw Jack uh, Russell, who's the uh, lead singer of the band, the original band, and still is out there today. I saw him perform just a few years ago while I was working on this book, and he still could sing. It was kind of amazing. I mean, this is a big hair band from the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, no, they don't have so much hair now, and that's, I'm not trying to make fun of them, but that's just the truth. They don't, it's not the same type of show. But that guy is still out there. He's still performing. This is what he loves to do. And this was, uh, you know, he certainly never intended, none of these people ever intended to hurt anyone. There's no way that band knew when they let off those pyrotechnics that the walls were going to be so flammable. I mean, this is the thing. Uh, this is a terrible, 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 horrible accident. Uh, nobody intended for anyone to get hurt. Uh, Ty Longley, who is a part of their band, he was not part of the original group from the 80s, but he was hired for this particular tour. Uh, he, the way Jack explains it, he says, you know, everybody turned turned right uh, uh, to leave and he turned left or something like that. And they don't know why he went in the opposite direction, but he perished. He was, he died in the fire. So losing one of their own members of their band, obviously they had, they had no idea what, what they were doing when they lit off these fireworks, that it was going to become so deadly so quickly. Uh, two questions here from uh, listeners. One person wants to know on the criminal uh, charges, what types of sentences did these people get? And then the second question coming in is they want to know what happened to that venue. Was it like, you know, turned into some kind of a memorial or was anything rebuilt there? That's the other question. Well, a really good question. So, look, the way the, the, that I wrote this book, because there's so many uh, people who were killed and so many people were hurt. Um, obviously, each person deserves to have their entire story told, but you can't do that in the format of the book. So I choose a handful of people uh, and kind of follow them before, during, and after the fire. And two of the people who I was able to get access to are two people who never spoke before, and those are two of the people who were accused and took the plea bargains. Basically, they were convicted in the deaths of these 100 people, and those were the uh, nightclub co-owners, Michael and Jeffrey Darian. The sentences that these people received, uh, and also the band manager, a guy named Daniel Beakley, the tour manager, who actually was the one who lit the fireworks, um, he also uh, took a plea bargain. And he spent about 18 months in prison, which really got people very, very, very angry. You could imagine losing a loved one and thinking 100 people are dead, and that's the best that the criminal justice, justice system can do is the guy yeah. gets 18 months. Right. It doesn't seem right. And so people were enraged by these uh, sentences. Uh, but around, keep in mind, all those other people we talked about who had culpability here, for example, you know, the the people who ran the state's fire system that never updated the codes, the fire inspector who didn't do those tests, 
Uh, how about the company that provided the foam? You have a receipt that shows that the guys ordered sign foam for their walls and they were given packing foam, which is absolutely deadly. None of those people were ever charged criminally, accused criminally, anything like that. All of that was uh, off the table. So this, the government came up with a very narrow focus on this. And one of the things that I learned as I worked on this project is, you know, we all believe that the criminal justice is some sort of search for the truth. And it's really not. One of the lawyers said right out to me, it's a search for a result. And that's a really important thing to think about. Not the truth, a result, a result, almost like any result that we can get. So we're going to go after what we think is the low-hanging fruit, the people who we think we can convict, not necessarily the people that we should convict. So we had a similar fire in California, in Oakland, the ghost ship warehouse fire very similar situation where a bunch of people partying in this place they shouldn't there were no sprinklers the place hadn't been inspected fire breaks out and 36 young people die just awful well in that particular case uh they did not do plea bargains the people who were accused the guys who were running the the rave basically were accused in the case they went to the full trial. They did the whole thing. Six months, awful, all the testimony, all the terrible details that the family had to sit through. And in the end, the jury would convict no one in that case because it was more complicated than simply pointing to two dudes and saying, these two dudes are responsible for all of these deaths. And in this particular case, I think that you have that as well, where the people who eventually took the plea bargains, who took, uh, you know, uh, who went to to prison uh, for this, um, they're not the whole story. And that's what's really interesting that emerges from this when you, you take a deep dive into it, look through all the testimony, all the evidence and say, wait a minute, this was, this was not as simple as it was presented to the public. And as a result, I do worry that we didn't necessarily focus on the right things that are the takeaways that people need to be concerned about today. As far as the place itself is concerned, what was really interesting also a twist in this story was that this was not a um, – the people who were uh, – took the plea bargains didn't actually own the building. They were renters. It's really interesting that people were like, how come these guys didn't install sprinklers? How come they didn't take – it's like they didn't actually own the property. They were renters. And so the um, uh, the building itself was owned by someone else. And eventually he donated that property to a memorial fund and a really beautiful memorial has been built on that spot that uh, every time I'm back east, I go and, and spend time there kind of to remind myself about the gravity of the story that I've reported. And the woman who really made it happen, this woman, Gina Russo, she is one of those handful of people that I follow from before, during and after this tragedy because she was trapped inside that building. She somehow Somehow, an amazing story uh, survived and went on to do incredible things with her life that helped other people. And one of them was making sure that there's a place for families to go to grieve and remember their loved ones. And uh, the title of the book, folks, is Trial by Fire, A Devastating Tragedy, 100 Lives Lost, and a 15-Year Search for the Truth. And the book, it's at all the big bookstores because I saw it at our big Barnes and Noble over in Orlando and also the one in St. Augustine. There's the Audible version. There's also the Kindle version. Uh, but to take our last uh, minute or so, Scott, and tell us about uh, the book and also what else would be in there that we haven't covered tonight. And if you have any website or or any other information you want sure, to provide. Sure. So- 
So look, uh, uh, my website is uh, scottjameswriter.com, and there I have links to all the places you can get the book. And I think, you know, I would encourage folks as we come out of this pandemic, shop local if you can. I mean, I, I have nothing against uh, Amazon and Jeff Bezos going to the moon or wherever he wants to spend all his money on, but it's you'll get more frankly, if you go to your local bookstore and spend the money there so that local people have the money pumped back into the economy. So I, I would definitely encourage you to go to your independent bookstore to find the book. Uh, and if they don't have it on the shelf, I can get it for you in a matter of days. I think what's interesting news, and this has just happened within the past uh, 24 hours, is uh, we have it confirmed that, um, uh, and we knew this was coming, was that uh, CBS News uh, program called 48 Hours will be doing an entire hour about uh, the reporting I did for this book. And that's coming up this Saturday night, October 23rd at 10 p.m. So it's interesting that after all of these years uh, that this tragedy has gone by, because someone finally like looked at the totality of what happened and said, you know, let's look at all of the evidence, let's put it all out on the table, uh, that this is actually now starting to get some national uh, I guess you would call it mainstream media attention. And so uh, uh, they filmed this over the past year. Uh, it was difficult, as you can imagine, because of the pandemic, a lot of restrictions, a lot of the people who we want to talk to and we want to hear from who survived this tragedy are, of course, um, they're still injured. They're still immune compromised. They still have respiratory issues. This is a very, very serious thing for them to survive. So uh, I remember being how impressed I was at the uh, network people were so careful about protocols and things like that. When we shot this, some of these interviews, there wasn't even vaccine out there in the world. So this was a challenging thing for everybody involved. And uh, I saw the, the promo on Saturday night during the last episode of 48 Hours promoting the upcoming one. And so that's confirmed and that's news that this will be uh, get the national spotlight this coming Saturday night. Very good. Scott James, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we highly recommend the book. And uh, if you want to do the Audible, I listen to the Audible while I'm riding my bicycle in the morning. I do 10 miles every morning. And uh, this is a 13-hour uh, Audible, which is which is great. It's super long and it, it moves quickly. And it's very interesting as he talks about individuals in the story. And uh, it's included if you've got the Audible membership. And uh, I know they pay us because I'm an Audible guy, too. They I'm a creator. Uh, they pay us even when people listen for free. So that's cool uh, uh, for Scott as well. <laughs> well but uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us, sir. God bless you. And uh, you, hey, you did a thank great thing. Thank you so much for having me. I really I appreciate it so much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Uh, wow. And there's so many lessons to learn from a, a book like that. I know sometimes people say, oh, it's about this, you know, fire that happened, you know, 17, 18 years ago. No, no, no. There, There's more in here for today even than there is about the historical event. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. Thanks for listening. So long, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>